Hey, we do welcome you tonight. We're, uh, th- this is a great study when we study uh, the truth about who God is. Because uh, uh, as, as we said a couple weeks ago, the most important thing about you and the most important thing about me is what we believe about God. And there's a lot of wrong stuff that we can believe about God. So, um, so tonight we're going to consult the book. Um, I'm not starting yet. I'm getting ready to pray. But I read something interesting this week. I was reading in USA Today uh, about a guy who, he's a chef, and he collects antique cookbooks. And I thought, why would anybody collect antique cookbooks? And the reason this guy collects antique cookbooks (coughs) is that antique cookbooks up until about the 1800s would give you a recipe And they would list all of the ingredients, but they would never give you the measurements. Think about that. They would give you the ingredients, but they would not give you the measurements. Uh, You had to figure out the measurements for yourself. Uh, That's sort of what God has done in the scriptures. He's given us all the ingredients, but he's not given us the measurements. And when I say that, when you have children, uh, each child is different. Uh, You don't measure out the same discipline to the same child because it doesn't take the same discipline with each child, does it? And see, that's where you need wisdom from Almighty God. If you've got a strong-willed kid and they push you, you're going to need to measure out more discipline. But sometimes you have a compliant child, and if you just raise your eyebrow they're broken and repentant. Uh, I really like that concept. God gives us the ingredients, but we're dependent on him for the right measurements. Philippians says, work out your salvation with fear and trembling, for it's God who is at work within you, both to will and to work for his good pleasure. It doesn't say work for your salvation. It says work it out. Uh, We work it out by going to the scriptures, getting the ingredients, and say, Lord, help me to have the right measurements. Uh, I I, I need the right amount of love here with this kid, and I need to measure out the right amount of discipline, which is an expression of love. And you guys guys get what I'm saying, don't you? So uh, let's go to the one who wrote the cookbook the book of books, and let's ask him for wisdom tonight. Father, we thank you that we do have a book that you have given to us. Uh, It is what we call a holy Bible, which simply means a holy book. Uh, Holy means pure. It is a pure book. It is a book uh, that we can trust. It is a book without error. It is a book that uh, is full of uh, your promises that we can live on. Uh, It is full of your truth that gives us a foundation that sets us free. We thank you that we have access to this book. We thank you for those um, down through the ages who died for this book, who gave their lives in translating this book who spent uh, years in jail away from their family 
because of this book. Uh, we, we thank you that it has been preserved and that we have access to it. And Lord, we're just a bunch of guys going through life, uh, just like men went through life a thousand years ago and 2,000 years ago. We're not much different than those guys. Uh, We've got a little bit more technology, and we've got a few more toys and a lot more conveniences, but we're dealing with the same issues. And what we need as what they needed was truth. So we thank you for the Old Testament and the New Testament. Uh, Some of us, our Bibles have been uh, uh, put together so that the words of Christ are in red. But, Lord, the fact of the matter is then every word in our Bible ought to be read because it's all your word. It's all the word of Christ. So we look into it tonight. Uh, We are interested in finding out the truth about you. And you have disclosed yourself to us. Uh, We we can't comprehend everything about you because we're finite. But you have given us some elementary principles that help us, uh, Lord, to trust you and, and to know that we can take you at your word and that you have never broken a promise and that you have uh, never made an error. You have never tripped up. Uh, you have no regrets. There's nothing you wish you could go back and do over. Now, for every one of us, that's the case, but not for you because you're the perfect one. We need wisdom with the measurements, Lord. We need, we need your wisdom to know how much of this we apply to a particular situation. That, that's, where the, uh, that's where the dependency comes in on you. And we're all dealing with uh, different circumstances. We're all dealing with different issues in our lives, but But what we have in common is that we need you, and we need your wisdom, and we need your word. Now, I pray tonight that you'll give us something that we can hang on to this week. You'll give us something that we can chew on and something that will stay with us and something, Lord, that will prepare us for what it is that's coming, maybe in the next few days that we know nothing about. Uh, Give us, Lord, truth that we can stand on when we hit our next crisis. Uh, Or maybe we're in crisis right now. Give us truth to support us. Give us teachable hearts. Make us willing to uh, wrestle with what we hear tonight. We, uh, We hold up everything we hear to the Word of God and compare it. And if it fits, we accept it. If it doesn't, we reject it. For your Word is the authority. And we pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. I'm just going to go ahead and take my watch off. And I'm going to put it right here where I can actually see it when I get around there later. The one that doesn't work? No, it works. I got it kind of revved up. uh, I'm thinking about breaking down and buying a new one. But I'm not sure I want to spend 40 bucks. You know what I mean? I'm one of those Timexes, but uh, they're, they're great watches. Uh, my, my son Josh put me onto a book by a guy named Thomas Morris called Making Sense of It All. Uh, Morris is an evangelical scholar at the University of Notre Dame. 
And this is a book that he has written on Blaise Pascal. Uh, Pascal is uh, famous for his pensies, which means thoughts. Uh, he carried uh, uh, a notebook with him that was discovered after he died. And it was just simply, it was, it was like a diary. It had random thoughts that he scribbled uh, one day with the hope of turning it into a book. But he died before he could write the book. But his thoughts are very, very significant. So T.B. Morris has written a book just on the thoughts of Pascal. Pascal is the one who said that every man has a God-shaped vacuum. And try as you will, you can try to fill that with other things. And we do that. We try to fill that vacuum with, uh, uh, with uh, houses or cars or uh, with uh, climbing the corporate ladder and uh, getting a certain salary or whatever. No matter what we try to do to fill that vacuum in our lives, we'll never get it filled because it's a God-shaped vacuum that only God can fill through his son, Jesus Christ. Pascal was uh, quite a thinker. This guy talks about mathematicians in here. I don't want to read you a little blurb on this as we get ready to study the love of God. Uh, Moore says, I've been told by the friend of a friend of a great mathematician that this genius cannot remember where he lives, although his house is only a short distance from the campus of the university where he works. The story, sworn to be true, is that the man must count each day the number of streets away from the campus and the number of houses down the street on the right as he walks home. Three streets down, take a right, 12 houses on the right. One day, I was told, as he was walking home, he was deep in thought about a mathematical problem, and he lost count. Utterly confused and totally lost, he saw a little boy playing at the side of the road. He said, excuse me, young man, can you tell me where the mathematics professor lives? The boy looked up and said, what is wrong with you, Dad? <laughs> True story. Then he says, one more story. Another mathematician, this time the great Hungarian Eugene Wigner. I am told that Wigner was visiting one of our more prominent universities, and there was a graduate student in mathematics who very much wanted to meet him. But every time he saw the great Wigner in the math building, he lost his nerve. Why be so presumptuous as to disturb the great man when he may be occupied with some deep and important thought? One day, however, the young student saw Professor Wigner at the local post office. This was neutral ground. The great man could be approached. Summoning up his courage, the graduate student began to walk across the room, rehearsing how he would introduce himself to his idol. Halfway there, though, he slowed his pace and stopped. Wigner was grimacing with furrowed brow and beginning to slap himself on the forehead with the palm of his right hand and an envelope in his left hand. He began to pace quickly back and forth, apparently deep in tortured thought. Important theorems uh, have been proved on the back of envelopes before, the young student thought. Perhaps a new proof was about to be born, or a whole realm of mathematics revolutionized. The grad student did not dare interrupt him, 
until he saw the professor become more and more desperate looking. Suddenly, the student forgot himself and blurted out, may I be of assistance, Professor Wigner? At that, the genius looked up, startled, and said, oh, yes, Wigner, and quickly scribbled his name on the upper left corner of the envelope <laughs> and dropped it in the outgoing <laughs> mail slot. See, I like that because I wasn't good at math. Um, he was making a point that is not the point I want to make. Uh, sometimes we get um, busy. Sometimes we get focused. Sometimes we get so honed in on something that we forget things that are very, very important. Young man, can you tell me where the mathematician lives? What is wrong with you, Dad? That's classic. When we look at the love of God tonight, uh, we can start off by saying that God has never forgotten who we are. There has never been a moment when God has not had you in mind. Before you were born, God knew about you. To the prophet Jeremiah, God said in Jeremiah 1, God said, before I formed you, I knew you. Uh, God knows all things. God is omnipresent. That means God is everywhere. Uh, God is omniscient. That means God knows everything. There, there is... There is nothing that God does not know. God knows everything, and God knows everything that could be. He is God. Therefore, when it comes to you, he has never forgotten who you are. He has never forgotten your name. He always has you in mind. There are times when we wonder about that. There are times when we wonder if he has not forgotten about us. Uh, the psalmist in Psalm 77 is going through a great struggle and wonders if God has forgotten how to be gracious. God has never forgotten our names. As we begin tonight by looking at the love of God, I'd like you to take your Bibles and turn with me, if you would, uh, to Romans chapter 8. Uh, Ro Romans 8 is, um, well, Romans is, gosh, Rom Romans is the centerpiece uh, of the New Testament. It used to be it used to be in law schools across the United States that you were required to read the book of Romans because of the tightness of the logic and the thought process. They would read Romans to find out how you build an argument and how you build uh, how you build a case. Uh, in, in Romans, beginning with verse 28, and I want to read down to 39. Paul has some things to say about uh, the character of God and some things to say about the love of God. And we know that God causes all things to work together for good to those who love God, to those who are called according to his purpose. For those 
whom he foreknew, he also predestined to become conformed to the image of his son so that he would be the firstborn among many brethren. And these whom he predestined, he also called. And these whom he called, he also justified. And and, and these whom he justified, he also glorified. What then shall we say to these things? If God is for us, who is against us? He who did not spare his own son, but delivered him over for us all, how will he not also with him freely give us all things? Who will bring a charge against God's elect? God is the one who justifies. Who is the one who condemns? Christ Jesus is he who died, yes, rather who was raised, who is at the right hand of God, who also intercedes for us. Who will separate us from the love of Christ? Will tribulation or distress or persecution or famine or nakedness or peril or sword? Just as it is written, for your sake, we are being put to death all day long. We were considered as sheep to be slaughtered. But in all these things, we overwhelmingly conquer through him who loved us. For I am convinced, Paul says, that neither death nor life nor angels, nor principalities, nor things present, nor things to come, nor powers, nor height, nor depth, nor any other created thing will be able to separate us from the love of God, which is in Christ Jesus our Lord. The love of God is a powerful, powerful force because it comes from a powerful, powerful God. Did you notice back there in verse 29, it says, for those whom he foreknew. Uh, He knew you before you were born. Some scholars have pointed out that there's a nuance to that word that we could easily miss, but that we can't afford to miss. That idea of foreknow contains with it the idea that he foreloved us. In the Old Testament, In speaking of the love that a man has for his wife and the expression of that love through sexual intimacy, that is often characterized by the word no. And Abraham knew Sarah. What does that mean? Does it mean he just had sexual intercourse with her? No. It it means that he loved her and in the sense also that he loved her and was committed, and, the, and, and in that act, that love was acted out. Uh, Paul says, don't you know that when you become one with a prostitute, uh, that when you engage a prostitute, you become one with her? And, and, and Paul says, listen, glorify God in your body. You've been bought with a price, you see. Um, there, there is a very touching aspect when it says that a man knew his wife because enveloped in that knowing is the idea of loving. So when it says he foreknew us, not only did he foreknow us, he foreloved us. Uh, the love of God, there's a lot of confusion about the love of God. Uh, tonight we're going to look at it from four different angles. 
what the scripture has to say uh, about the love of God. Let me begin by giving you a definition of the love of God. So get us started. God's love is an exercise of his goodness. And you know, that's all that is within God is goodness. You know, Psalm 119, is it 62 or verse 68? I can't remember. It says, the Lord is good and does good. God can only do good. God's love is an exercise of his goodness towards individual sinners. That's us. Whereby, having identified himself with their welfare. If you saw the passion, the benefit of that film is that it has been put in our minds quite, uh, could we say, it's been uh, burned on our minds. How he identified with us and our welfare, because you see, he was not guilty. We were the ones who were guilty. He was without sin. We were the ones with sin. I keep interrupting this definition. God's love is an exercise of his goodness towards individual sinners, whereby, having identified himself with their welfare, he has given his son to be their savior, and now brings them to know and enjoy him in a covenant relationship. I like that. Um, sure. That's yeah, a long one. God's love is an exercise of his goodness toward individual sinners, whereby, having identified himself with their welfare, he has given his son to be their Savior, and now brings them to know and enjoy him in a covenant relationship. If you missed it, we'll get it to you at the end. How's that? There are four, at least four different aspects to the love of God. And where we're going to pick up tonight is really where we left off last week. Um, here's my... Here's number one on the four aspects of God's love. God's love involves holiness. Last week, we talked about the holiness of God, the primary attribute of God. See, a lot of people think the primary attribute of God is love. If there is an outstanding characteristic of God, it is love. God is love. But the primary uh, bedrock attribute of God is holiness. And last week we looked at Isaiah chapter 6. And Isaiah said, In the year that King Uzziah died, I saw the Lord, high and mighty, lifted up. And the train of his temple, the train of his robe, filled the temple. And then he spoke about the seraphim. The seraphim are created beings, uh, angelic beings, that have one function and purpose. All they do is declare the holiness of God. They've got six wings. Uh, and they cry out, holy, holy, holy is the Lord God Almighty. God is holy. What does holy mean? Uh, it means moral purity. So to understand God, you have to begin with his primary attribute, which is his moral purity, his holiness. 
And throughout the scriptures, he says, be ye holy. When we come to Christ, the, the holiness of Christ is transferred to us. When we come to Christ and ask him into our lives, uh, we receive his forgiveness. It was, it was his holiness that paid for our sins. And now, as we have been forgiven, that's something we could never earn, as we have received that gift, now he wants us to walk in holiness. He wants us to walk in purity. So you read through Ephesians, you read through Colossians, you read through Philippians, and it'll say, let him who steals, steal no longer. So you've been a shoplifter for 16 years? Quit shoplifting. Don't shoplift anymore. You're going to start walking in purity. Have you been a, a liar all these years? Stop lying and tell the truth. You see, there's going to be a process there. We're beginning to pursue, um, we're beginning to pursue holiness and purity ourselves. I was reading this week about uh, a forum that was conducted at the Harvard Divinity School. Some people would be shocked to know that Harvard has a divinity school. But you see, Harvard was founded by Christians. Harvard was founded for the purpose of equipping men to become ministers of the gospel of Jesus Christ. That's the charter of Harvard University. It was a, an institution designed to, to uh, uh, equip pastors in the word of God, in the inerrant word of God. So they still have a divinity school. Uh, their, their faculty was sponsoring a forum to discuss Mel Gibson's movie, The Passion. And it was interesting to read some of the comments of these uh, professors who, quite frankly, don't believe a thing about this book. Uh, Harvey Cox, the, the very famous liberal, uh, had nothing good to say about the passion. Another professor said that the, the Gospels are a very questionable historical document about the, about the passion. Well, quite frankly, they're the only historical document about the passion. <clears throat> and they're not questionable. They're solid history. Uh, uh, Peter Gomes is the dean of the chapel at Harvard University. He's written a book on preaching. Uh, he's a practicing homosexual. He uh, preaches much about the love of God. Uh, he never talks about the holiness of God because he doesn't know God, not the God of the Bible. Uh, God's love always involves, always involves holiness. Theodore Roosevelt, great president, about 100 years ago said this, every thinking man, when he thinks, I love that, <laughs> every thinking man, when he thinks, realizes that the teachings of the Bible are so interwoven and entwined with our whole civic and social life that it would be literally impossible for us to figure ourselves what that life would be if these standards were removed. We would lose almost all the standards by which we now judge both public and private morals. All the standards which we, with more or less resolution, strive to raise ourselves. Well, that's precisely what's happened. We've lost it. Basically, what he's saying is, he said, if you, want to, if, if you remove the Bible from this nation, uh, 
You've taken away our morality. You've taken away our judicial system. You've taken away our basis to decide between right and wrong. Well, we, we, we've done that. We've taken it away. We've removed it. And that's why we are collapsing morally like a pancake uh, on a daily basis. Everywhere you look. Every time I read the news, I see another collapse. Another collapse. Another. Why? We've removed the Bible. We have removed, we've removed the salt. So we've lost uh, the savor. See, when you remove God from a nation, uh, when you remove the Bible from a nation, uh, you've removed holiness from a nation, you see. Isn't it interesting, uh, the comments that are being made about the war in Iraq? And uh, if you saw that press conference you, last night, I mean, what a sham that was. Uh, I'm talking about those reporters, in case you're missing what I'm saying. Um, and... And you watch some of the news programs, and the apparent, and I'm going to say in some ways, um, faked concern for the families who have lost loved ones. Uh, you know, it, it, that's sort of a subtle message. And when the president or someone in his administration would ask, well, don't you care about these grieving families? Well, you know, of course. That, that is a, it, it, it's a tragedy. It's a great sadness. Uh, but you know what these people tend not to stop and think about is, is the fact that there have been thousands upon thousands upon thousands of young men who have given their lives throughout the history of this nation so that we could have the modicum of freedom that we do enjoy. Uh, no one enjoys seeing young men in their prime being cut down. It'll rip your guts out. Uh, it's a great sadness. But Jesus said, no greater love is there than this, that a man lay down his life for his friends. Uh, in a sense, by just putting the emphasis on, well, don't you care about the family? Of course we care. But the fact of the matter is, they have made an, a, a, a sacrifice that is to be honored, and there are some things even more important than life, quite frankly. See, the problem with some of these people is there is nothing in their life for which they would be willing to die for. Nothing. Why? Because they have no holiness, they have no purity, they have no morals. They believe in nothing except themselves. They're tolerant. And which brings up G.K. Chesterton, which I've used before in here. Chesterton said, tolerance is the virtue of people who don't believe in anything. That's what tolerance is. Isaiah didn't say that the seraphim called out one to another, tolerant, 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 is the Lord God Almighty. They didn't even say loving, loving, loving is the Lord God Almighty, although God is loving. But God's love is always anchored to his holiness. Always. We forget that as modern people. Uh, so as a result, we get this view of God uh, that is uh, out of focus 
biblically in the 60s, and I can't remember if I have used this here recently. Um, it all runs together after a while. I can't remember what I did here or I did last weekend and wherever I was. Well, I was here last weekend. I know where I'm going to be this week. And it's great to be here in Alabama with you guys tonight. <laughs> what I'm trying to say, I don't know if I used this quote or not recently, but uh, some of you who were around in the 60s remember the Gestalt prayer that was written by Fritz Perls. It was very popular. You could buy posters. A lot of college students had a poster in their room of the Gestalt prayer, which simply says, I do my thing and you do yours. And if by chance we find each other, it's beautiful. <laughs> that is one of the greatest pieces of crap <laughs> ever written in the history of the world. Think about it. I do my thing. Is that not the message of the 60s? I do my thing and you do yours. You smoke your dope, I'll smoke my dope. Uh, I do my thing and you do yours, and if by chance we find each other, it's beautiful. You know, that's not true. How would that work in your marriage? Stop and think about that. If you did your thing in your marriage and, and your wife did her thing, it wouldn't be beautiful. <laughs> It, it, it would be nuclear war. Because <clears throat> you see, when I do my thing, I'm selfish. If my wife does her thing, she'll be selfish. You can't have a good marriage when you have two selfish people. You can't be good parents when you're selfish. Those little kids are born, and they don't have any interest in serving you whatsoever all they want to do is be served and if you don't serve them they won't live they are totally dependent uh, the gestalt prayer uh sounded cool it sounded hip it, it, it sounded like a breakthrough it's absolute trash uh, that's not love that's selfishness um, that that prayer by fritz Perls. I made a note here. For many people, this would describe the kind of love that they think God has. Uh, they see God as being indifferent to moral absolutes and soft in regard to day-to-day -day behavior. Uh, see, the, the God that we want to manufacture is not a God who gave the Ten Commandments. The God that we want to manufacture is uh, a God who would say, oh, you want to commit adultery? You do. Go ahead. You do your thing. But see, that's not God. That's not the love of God because the love of God is always anchored and tied into the love of God. Uh, turn with me to 1 John, if you would. If you're in Romans, go to the right. You'll find 1 John. If you go to Revelation, you've gone too far. As you find some of these little books towards the, uh, towards the back of your Bible, 1 John <clears throat> One five, the apostle says, this is the message we have heard from him and announced to you, now catch this, that God is light. And in him, there is no darkness at all. 
Light here means holiness and purity as measured by God's law. That's, uh, what are we doing here? This is, that's 1 John 1, verse 5. So what is light? It means holiness and purity as measured by God's law. Darkness means moral perversity and unrighteousness as measured by that same law. Our, our culture is so far gone, our culture says there is no law. Our culture says there is no right, there is no wrong. There is no standard, there is no reference point. Uh, our culture is becoming an increasingly lawless culture. We don't want a reference point. But see, God by his very nature, by his holiness, has given us uh, the law, the Old Testament scriptures are an extension of his holiness. The Ten Commandments. Uh, this is what Theodore Roosevelt was saying. Basically, Roosevelt's saying, hey, you want to take the, you, you want to break this nation down? Then rip the Ten Commandments out from underneath it. Well, which is what we've done. I, I, I heard this week of a uh, Korean gentleman in Los Angeles that uh, uh, was walking out of his uh, place of business and he saw uh, two men breaking into his car, destroying, uh, breaking the windows with bats, uh, uh, destroying his property. They were trying to get in. They were going to take his car, steal it. Uh, he pulls out a gun. He's quite a distance away, fires a shot, actually hits one of the men and killed the man. And he's been indicted for murder in, in uh, California and is facing a 50-year sentence. Now, um, that's real interesting. You know what that tells me? It tells me somebody's got the law. Uh, you know what that tells me? That tells me the DA out there doesn't know the law. That tells me the DA out there doesn't care about the law. Uh, you, you guys know what I'm talking about. And we've talked about that in here before. We're living in days where we have maverick judges that are practicing sociological, situational law. They don't care about law. They don't want a fixed reference point. They simply want to rule on their whims and what seems best to them and what they think to be right. Um, God is a holy God. His love can only be understood in light, in light of his holiness. Um, I was reading John Leo last night uh, in U.S. News. Uh, you've heard of hate crimes. Hate crimes always are, are fascinating to me because uh, you don't find hate crimes in the Bible. Uh, hate crimes, what you find in the Bible is that God protecting the rights of all people regardless of their color. If you do something wrong before Almighty God, it doesn't matter if you're Asian, it doesn't matter if you're Caucasian, it doesn't matter if you're African American. The person to whom you do that to it doesn't matter the color. You don't find that in the scriptures. But we are putting special classifications on certain crimes, and depending on the color of a person's skin, the, um, uh, the sentence will become greater. On the surface, that might seem just. Uh, I would submit to you biblically it's unjust. Uh, Martin Luther King talked about the fact that he hoped that one day we could get to a point 
where we judge men not by the color of their skin, but by the content of their what? Character. Character. Uh, John Leo has an article called Stomping on Free Speech. He says, Canada, where's my watch? Okay. Canada is a pleasantly authoritarian country. Alan Borovoy, general counsel of the Canadian Civil Liberties Association, said a few years ago. Did you catch that? Canada is a pleasantly authoritarian country. An example of what he means is Bill C-250, a repressive anti-free speech measure that is on the brink of becoming law in Canada. It would add sexual orientation to the Canadian hate propaganda law, thus making public criticism of homosexuality a crime. Public criticism. It is sometimes called the Bible as hate literature bill, or simply the chill bill. It could ban publicly expressed opposition to gay marriage or any other political goal of gay groups. Uh, the bill has a loophole for religious opposition to homosexuality, but few scholars think it will offer any protection, given the, given the strength of the gay lobby and the trend toward censorship in Canada. Um, uh, David Bernstein, author of a book called You Can't Say That, uh, has written that it has apparently become illegal in Canada to advocate traditional Christian opposition to uh, homosexual sex. Since Canada has no First Amendment, anti-bias laws generally trump free speech and freedom of religion. It goes on and talks about a man that um, in Saskatchewan, Human Rights Commission ruled that this man who had taken out a newspaper ad listing biblical passages that opposed homosexuality was a human rights offense. He didn't say a word, he just gave passages. They ordered, uh, the commission ordered the paper and Hugh Owens, the man who placed the ad, to pay $1,500 each to three gay men who objected to it. In another case, a British Columbia court upheld the one-month suspension without pay of a high school teacher who wrote letters to a local paper arguing that homosexuality is not a fixed orientation but a condition that can and should be treated. The teacher, Chris Kempling, was not accused of discrimination, merely of expressing thoughts that the state defines, defines as improper. The church seems to be a key target of C-250. One of Canada's gay senators denounced ecclesiastical dictators and wrote to a critic, you people are sick. God should strike you dead. <laughs> Nothing like the love of God, huh? <laughs> in 1998, lesbian lawyer Barbara Finlay of British Columbia said, the legal struggle for queer rights will one day be a struggle between freedom of religion versus sexual orientation. You say, oh, that'll never happen here because we have a First Amendment. No, we don't. No, we don't. I mean, it's there. But they've already twisted it. And do you think a First Amendment is going to stop some federal judge at some point? You guys see what I'm talking about. See, they call those hate crimes. Isn't it interesting that when you uh, just simply say what the Bible says, that's a hate crime. If you say homosexuality is sin, which it is, by the way, heterosexual adultery is sin. But it's not a hate crime to say that's sin. But if you say that uh, homosexual sin is sin, homosexual activity is sin, that's a hate crime. When you simply declare what the Word of God says, that's a hate crime because of their view. And then this guy quotes God. See, his God, his God has no holiness. He has a smarmy, uh, 60-ish 
kind of God that doesn't care about right or wrong, a God who has no fixed absolutes. All that matters to his God is that one be happy. That's all that matters. Uh, that's not the God of the Bible. This can affect evangelical men. This can happen to us. I'll never forget when I was a rookie pastor. I had this guy in my office. I'm 27. This guy's probably 65. Big guy, uh, well-known in our community. Big giver. Write big checks. You want to be nice to those guys. Because they write big checks. Uh, involved in all these different ministries, you know. Actually built his own Christian conference center, youth camp. Now, the reason I was meeting with this guy was that uh, not to ask him about discipling some young men at the youth camp or not to discuss the curriculum they were going to teach over the summer in the scriptures. The reason I was meeting with this uh, Christian leader in our community uh, was that he was sexually involved with a 19-year-old girl who was a counselor at his youth camp. And that's why I was meeting with him. And he was pretty sharp. And uh, his wife of 40 years looked like... I, I'll tell you something. He, he treated her like dirt. And he had uh, three or four grown children who were embarrassed and humiliated by what their father was doing. And I remember as I was talking with him in my office... Guy was sharp. He knew the scriptures. I would make a comment. He'd come back with the scriptures. Sucker knew the word of God. He knew it because he'd been in church all his life. Um, I'll never forget at some point, and then I would come back and make a statement. So we were kind of jousting for a while. And I'll never forget at one point, he just slammed his fist down on my desk. And he looked at me and he said, he said, hey, don't I have a right to be happy? That's what he said. See, I'll tell you something. This guy didn't like hippies. This guy didn't like people with long hair. This guy didn't like people who smoked dope. If he saw some guy driving an old Volkswagen van, he'd run over him in a Suburban. You know what I'm talking about? This guy was no hippie. But he was a hippie in his heart. When he said, after 10, 20 minutes, 30 minutes, finally it came down to, don't I have a right to be happy? Don't I have a right to do my thing? That was his old basis. That's what he came down to. I have a right. Don't I have a right to be happy? I said, hey, let me ask you something. Your wife, who you've been married to for what, 40 years? How about her right to be happy? What about her? And what she's done for you and she's given you for What about your kids who you were embarrassed, who are humiliated by you? What about them? Do they have a right to be happy? That was a jerk got up he walked out he's mowing his yard about three months later dropped dead of a sudden heart attack I found that very interesting because God disciplines believers who don't take the word of God seriously uh, and the question I would have was was he really a believer that he could trample and spit on the holiness of God like that with absolutely no a, a conscience that was absolutely hardened and corroded. He felt nothing. 
All he was concerned about was his own happiness. See, what I'm saying, guys, we can read these quotes from U.S. News and the court system, all that. But see, what about, what about my life? Where's the holiness of God in my life, in my morals, how I make decisions, how I live my life, how I dealt with people today, uh, how I discipline my children, how I relate to my wife, how I, uh, what kind of employee that I am. See, the love of God is always anchored in the holiness of God, always. Let's go to number two, because the clock's moving. God, and I've already touched this one. I just didn't give you the number. Number two is God's love involves discipline. Discipline. Turn with me to Hebrews chapter 12. Some of you guys are new to your Bible, and it's always difficult to find where these books are. So if you're in Peter, uh, go to your left, and you'll find, if you were in John, I should say, uh, go, to, you, go to your left, and you'll find Hebrews, just a few books to your left. And look at Hebrews chapter 12. We see the relationship of God's love towards his discipline. Um, you can grant, you, you can count on something. If, if, uh, if you are loved by God, you can count on the fact that he will discipline you. Uh, beginning with verse 7. Actually, beginning with verse 4 to get the context. You have not yet resisted to the point of shedding blood in your striving against sin. And you have forgotten the exhortation which is addressed to you as sons. My son... Do not regard lightly the discipline of the Lord, nor faint when you are reproved by him. For those whom the Lord loves, he disciplines, and he scourges every son whom he receives. It is for discipline that you endure. God deals with you as sons. For what son is there whom his father does not discipline? Well, quite a few in our culture. Because we have lost the influence of the Bible that Theodore Roosevelt was talking about. A hundred years ago, fathers disciplined sons. Today, a kid mouths off to his mother and uh, uh, shoplifts at 7-Eleven and comes home with flunking grades, and his father in North Dallas will buy him a new Mustang. Well, yeah, the schools can't discipline them. But see, there's another breakdown. There's another collapse. I don't mean to depress you guys, but I'm doing a good job of it, aren't I? You see what happens when we walk away from the holiness of God? That's why the scripture says, how blessed is the nation whose God is the Lord. We could say how blessed is the family whose God is the Lord. Um, seven says, for what son is there whom his father does not discipline? But if you are without discipline of which all have become partakers, then you are illegitimate children and not sons. Furthermore, we had earthly fathers to discipline us, and we respected them. Shall we not much rather be subject to the Father of spirits and live? I love 10. I love this. For they disciplined us for a short time as seemed best to them. But he disciplines us for our good, so that we may share his, what? Holiness. All discipline for the moment seems not to be joyful. That's one of the great understatements of life. Did you get that? All discipline for the moment seems not to be joyful. I, I would agree with that. Sure. But sorrowful. 
Yet to those who have been trained by it, afterward it yields the peaceful fruit of righteousness. A while back, I mentioned to you guys this book that I think is outstanding. Uh, God and Ronald Reagan, A Spiritual Life. I highly recommend this book. I, ha I have to tell you, this guy has insight uh, into the spiritual life, the relationship that Reagan had with Christ that I was not aware of. Um, Reagan knew the Lord. There's no question about it. If you, if, you're, if you doubt that, read this book. The evidence is overwhelming. He was raised by a godly mother. Uh, he memorized scripture as a kid. Uh, his daughter, Patty, who was a rebel, uh, a rebel, if you remember her, she was a troublemaker. Um, she commented from time to time that she would see uh, her father um, with his eyes closed but his lips moving. And some of uh, her friends even would say, hey, what, what's your dad doing? Is he asleep? Is he and she, and she would say, no, whenever his eyes are closed and his lips are just moving, he's praying. Even when she was in rebellion, she acknowledged that her dad was a, a man of prayer. Um, she wrote a book in 1995. Let me just read what, uh, what Kinger says. He says, and yet in 1995, Patty, probably the most controversial and difficult of the Reagan children, published a book called Angels Don't Die, my father's gift of faith, a remarkable testimony to the gift her father bestowed upon his daughter. She writes, the world knows much about Ronald Reagan. It should also be known that he passed along to his daughter a deep, resilient faith that God's love never wavers. And that no matter how harsh life seems or how cruel the world is, that love is constant, unconditional, and eternal. Different. Patty Reagan. The world should know that Ronald Reagan was a father who patiently answered his child's questions about God and angels and miracles. That child grew into an adult who has never doubted the possibility of miracles in the presence of God and who hears her father's answers even when the dark times seem overwhelming. He goes on and he says, though it's not clear Patty became a Christian, her words make it plain that she did come to reject atheism. Her book appeared shortly after her father first announced the onset of Alzheimer's at a point when his mind was still strong enough to converse regularly with her, he must have been moved by the gift she had given him in return, the gift of, uh, of that book. Uh, he had to discipline her, and she was rebellious, and she resented it as a teenage girl and as a young girl in her 20s. But now that she's an older woman, she looks back and speaks of the love uh, of her father. Because, you see, love is always tied in with what? Discipline. Discipline. He goes on and he talks about, uh, well, I'll just read it to you. Reagan made remarks, uh, back up. Uh, remarks he made during these years reflect Reagan's belief that there was much the state could learn from the church. The governor told David Frost that Christ was the historical figure he most admired. That reminds me of another president. And he believed the lawmakers could learn from Christ's teachings. Can you name one problem that would not be solved if we had simply followed the teachings of the man from Galilee? He asked rhetorically in a September 1967 speech. 
He said the answer to each and every problem could be found in the simple words of Jesus of Nazareth. In a later gubernatorial address, he asserted if we live by the golden rule, there would be no need for other laws. Among the political issues during Reagan's gubernatorial tenure, there were certain challenges that prompted him to call upon his faith for answers. Among them was the death penalty. Reagan believed that capital punishment conformed to biblical teaching, and it was a question to which he had devoted considerable thought. One of his bookshelves at the ranch still holds a 1925 book on the death penalty by a man named Lamar T. Berman. Sections of the book that refer to God and Scripture have been underlined and bracketed in red ink. I was reading this week about George Washington, and there was a man that served under him that had uh, done something in his behavior that was treason. Uh, the penalty was death, and uh, the great uh, Presbyterian theologian, uh, R.L. Dabney talked about the process that Washington went through in thinking through the sentence that was going to be handed out to this man. He, he had been given the sentence of death, but it was in uh, George Washington's power to commute the service and let the man go. And, and he talks about all the issues biblically that Washington had to think through. And in the final analysis, he allowed the sentence to be carried out, although he knew this man personally and knew his family. The overriding factor in that decision was the holiness of God. You see, discipline is always tied in with the love of God, and discipline and the love of God are always anchored in the holiness of God. It always amazes me that are those who are pro-abortion are always against capital punishment. Have you noticed that? Always. Because, you see, it follows it, it, I mean, it doesn't make sense, but it does make sense. If you're contrary to what God says, it makes sense that you would be for killing children, but not, killing not for killing people who have killed people. When God says that life is precious. See, there's the principle. Life is precious. They violate it on both counts because they don't know the holiness of God. God disciplines us as believers. So you want to screw around with sin? You want to go into waters you know you shouldn't go into? You, you want to violate your principles biblically? You, you know the truth. You've been in Bible study. There, there's, there's a guy right now who used to be in this study that's involved with another man's wife who is a part of this fellowship. The guy doesn't come to this study anymore. I offered to meet. He won't meet with me. He didn't want to meet with Chuck. He didn't want to... He didn't want to meet with any of the elders. Why not? He knows the truth. He just wants to do it. He knows what he's doing is wrong. But see, uh, he doesn't care about holiness. He doesn't care about the holiness of God, and he doesn't care about his own personal holiness. <clears throat> Can I tell you something about that guy? God will discipline him. God will hem him in. Things will get increasingly difficult for that man until he yields. How difficult that will become is in his court. It's just how we deal with our children. It's exactly the same principle, guys. God is a God of love. If, if you've never been disciplined by God, you ought to check out if you're even a legitimate son of God, the Scripture says. Uh, this helps me. It, it should help those of you that have young children at home because we live in a day of permissiveness. 
We, day, we live in a day where you don't do anything to damage the psyche of your child. I think I've told you this before. One of the things I remember about my, my dad is this gesture of love. <laughs> my dad loves me. My dad would die for me. My dad would do anything for me. But my dad would often do this. He started pulling off that belt. And I started saying, Dad, I'm really sorry. <laughs> I'm, re I'm really sorry, Dad. Dad, I, I didn't mean to. He's very calm. He said, now, Steve, didn't we talk about this? <gasps> yeah. And this is embarrassing because I'm 23 years old. <laughs> no. But every once in a while, my dad would pull off the belt. Was he an abuser? Uh-uh. No, he loved me. You know what he was trying to do? He was trying to train me for righteousness. He was trying to retra train me to become a responsible man, to become a responsible husband. He was trying to train me to think about others instead of myself. He was trying to show me the importance of holiness. He was trying to show me the importance of telling the truth. Because if you're a liar, you can't have a good marriage. And he wanted me to have a good marriage. So when I would lie, he would discipline me. Not to destroy me, but to save me. That's what God does with us. You see? So have you got kids at home? Love them. You love them enough to discipline them appropriately. What, what does Proverbs say? Discipline your son while there is hope. You got a kid that's a junior in high school? You got a kid that's a senior in high school that's out of control? You better step in. And you better institute some some measures while there is hope and stick to them even if it rips your guts out. That's your job. It's tough stuff. It's hard. It's so hard. But God's with you. And he's for you. And he will say, well, how much, Steve do, how, much measure, how much discipline do I measure out? Uh, well, discipline's the ingredient. You need his wisdom to know how much to measure. Just like the antique cookbook. Right? There's another aspect to the love of God. There might be two more. <laughs> I don't want to break my record tonight. You guys still with me? You guys always say you're with me. That's very kind of you. Um, here's the third one. God's love involves a guarantee. A guarantee. Go back to Romans. Romans 5.5. 5. The, the love of God is always there. The love of God is always active. The love of God is always available. Always. Romans chapter 5. Therefore, I'm going to begin with verse 1. Having been justified by faith, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. Uh, we're justified by faith when by faith we believe in the sacrifice of Jesus Christ on the cross to pay for our sins. We have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. I'm in Romans 5, verse 2. Through whom also we have obtained our introduction by faith into this grace in which we stand, and we exult in the hope of the glory of God. And not only this, but we also exult in our tribulations, knowing that tribulation brings about perseverance. And perseverance, proven character. And proven character, hope. And hope does not disappoint because the love of God has been poured out within our hearts through the Holy Spirit who has been given to us. 
The love of God has been poured out. Let me make a couple comments about the fact that his love has been poured out. Number one, the verb poured out has the idea of flooding or inundating. God floods you. Uh, imagine standing, uh, not just standing, but walking through life and imagine Niagara Falls being the love of God. You are constantly inundated with the love of God. You say, well, Steve, I don't feel that way. Well, you may not. So there are difficult circumstances in my life. Well, maybe that's because God is trying to grow you in Christ. And he's allowing some hardship. Don't you allow hardship into the life of your son or daughter from time to time? Sure. Why? Because that's what builds character. I saw a, a commercial the other night. I was watching the hockey playoff, and they had this new commercial for the Army. And it shows these guys, uh, it shows this terrorist camp. And then up in the mountains, uh, it shows these two guys who were snipers, special forces guys. And it says something like this. Uh, they went on this mission with five days provisions. And they're on the 12th day. And then it shows them lining those guys up. Uh, you know what the message of that was? Hey, this is tough. This is hard. This isn't easy. These guys are hungry. These guys are tired. These guys are dirty. These guys are like a hot shower. But they're out there. Do you have the guts to join them? That was the essence of that commercial. Shoot, I was ready to go down and sign up. <laughs> you know? Suckers haven't eaten probably for seven days. They've been on half rations for seven days. It doesn't matter. They got a job to do. See, that's, that, uh, uh, what is that? that? They're in tribulation. That brings about perseverance and that brings about character. That takes guts. When we, so you're going through something like that? Well, the love of God, he's just making you into a man. He's making you into a godly man. Secondly, the tense of that verb is, is the perfect. It, it signifies completed action with ongoing, continuous results. The love of God will be perpetually poured into your life forever. It'll never stop. Niagara keeps pouring. The love of Niagara Falls, the love of God, keeps pouring and pouring and pouring into your life, whether you know it or not. Sometimes your kids get mad at you. Sometimes your kids don't understand you. Sometimes your kids question you. Sometimes your kids go in the bathroom and shut the door and cuss you out. Not, you did that when you were a kid. But some of you guys will stand up and with tears in your eyes, you'll talk about your father and how much he loved you. And one day they'll do the same thing. Third thing. Note that this is the normal ministry of the Holy Spirit to believers. He loves us. Guys, this is a great antidote to fear. As men, we face fear from time to time. Fearful circumstances. You get laid off. You don't know how you're going to make your mortgage payment. Or your wife's got cancer. Or there are circumstances that scare the tar out of us. We get fearful. But Second uh, Timothy 1.7 says this. God has not given us a spirit of fear but rather of, anybody remember? But rather of love. God has not given, turn, turn over there real quick. Second Timothy 1, 7. This is a great verse. Go to your right on this one. Second Timothy 1. It's either verse 7 or verse 5. We'll find out when we get there. 7. For God has not given us a spirit of timidity or a spirit of fear or literally cowardice, but of power and love and discipline. So when you get fearful, 
and you get worried and you get overly anxious, there are several things you need to remember. Number one, you need to remember the power of God. When your situation looks hopeless, the power of God, that's, that's where God specializes. Our situations are never hopeless because the power of God is always available. So you got to remember the power of God when you get fearful. Secondly, you remember the love of God. And see, when we get in desperate situations and fearful situations, we tend to play the what-if game. Well, what if this happens? What if that happens? And our minds go crazy, and we think of the worst, very, the, the worst thing that could possibly ever happen to us. Freaks us out. We can't sleep at night. Can I suggest something to you? Go ahead and think of the worst possible thing that could ever happen to you. Go ahead. Write it down. And then over it, write the power of God and write the love of God. As Carrie says, bring it on. You can face any fear if you're walking with Christ. Doesn't matter what it is. Doesn't matter what's scared. We get scared. We do get scared. There are things in life that ought to scare you. If you got any brains, you ought to be scared about half the time. Because life's scary. There are all these unknowns. Economy's doing all right. That's why they didn't ask any questions last night about the economy. Because the economy's doing real well. But let me tell you something. There could be one more attack, and that economy's going to tank, and so is your IRA, and so are your Kios, and all that stuff you're counting on. Well, I hadn't thought of that. Well, think about it. You won't sleep tonight. <laughs> but let's say you're totally wiped out. Let's say you made it through this last downturn. Let's say, but what if another one comes and this one gets you? What are you going to do? Well, there's the power of God. And there's a love of God which leads to sound thinking, to sound judgment. Hey, you know what, Lord? I just give it to you. I belong to you. You love me with an everlasting love. You will never stop loving me. Therefore, you'll never stop providing for me. You'll never start making a way for me. Lord, all these things that happen, I don't want them to happen. But you know what, Lord? I commit myself into your, into your hand. You're a good God. I can trust you. I'm, I refuse. I refuse to give in to this fear. I grab myself and say, why are you in despair, oh, my soul? Get a grip. That's easy to say when everything's fine. But see, we've we got we to grab ourselves and put ourselves up against the wall. Say, hey, listen, who is this God you serve? He's not going to let me. Has he ever let me down? No, he's not going to let me down. I'm going to walk with him. I'm going to trust him. I'm going to count on him. All right, if I'm not going to beat my record, I've got to close. Uh, number four, God's love involves a promise. You say, what's the promise, Steve? We started off with it tonight, Romans 8:28. For we know, and do you know this? For we know that God works most things. Aren't you glad it doesn't say that? For we know that God works all things. What's the worst thing that's ever happened to you? What's the worst thing anyone's ever done to you? This includes that. For we know that God works all things for good. To those who, what? Love God and are called according to his purpose. Whatever comes into your life is for your good. That's why Joseph could look his brothers in the eye. Years later, they hated his guts. And he said, you intended it for evil. Did they intend it for evil? Yes. There are people who have intended to hurt you. They had evil in their heart. All they can do is bring good into your life. He said, you intended it for evil, but God intended it for good. That's the love of God. You can live off that promise. 
and we can get this on one CD. <laughs> so, Lord, we pray, and we thank you for your word. We thank you for your love. Some of us really needed to hear this tonight. In fact, I imagine all of us needed to hear it. You haven't forgotten about us. You haven't abandoned us. Even if things are tough today, your love is behind it because you're growing us and you're making us into men. We might be on the 12th day and we only had five days of rations. You're still good and you still care. And we'll be better men when we come out of this than when we went into it. Help us to live with this in mind tomorrow when we get up. In Jesus' name we pray.